to Daily Rios for February 1st, 2013, the first Feedback Friday of February. How about that alliteration? Um, I'm still sort of out of it. I don't know how much focus I'll have for this episode. <laughs> I don't even remember putting that episode up last night, but apparently I did. Um, so I'm just going to go through a few feedback things that I got and just see how long... Um, it takes for me to just sort of zone out. We'll start with this. Uh, Murray Fox left a comment uh, about the Top 5 Movie Couples episode that I presented earlier in the week. And he says, I knew three of your top five, and they were awesome choices. Totally clueless about your first and last pick. Well, Murray, in order... Uh, those clips were, the first one was from Crazy Stupid Love, and it featured Emma Stone and Ryan Gosling, because, and I included that because that is the movie that just made me crazy about Emma Stone. Um, I liked the way that that couple came together in that movie. Sure, it's Hollywood and it is a movie, but there was something kind of real, really easy about it, natural almost. Uh, you know, where you find yourself spending a night with someone that maybe you thought you never would be with. And, you know, you just, you're there for one reason and it turns into another reason. You wind up just talking all night and um, the couple just sort of comes together, right? Uh, I think Crazy Stupid Love is just a smart, funny movie. And uh, I liked their relationship. I liked that couple and I liked how easy, easily they got into a relationship. And... There wasn't much drama about it. I toyed with putting Ryan Gosling and Michelle Williams from uh, Blue Valentine, but that movie is dark. And uh, I can't honestly say that I think of that relationship as something that I would strive for. So, um, you know, I only brought that up because of the Ryan Gosling connection. So, anyway, um, the second movie I listed was Princess Bride. Because, come on, I'm a sucker for that kind of romance. And in that clip especially, the way they, they pick on each other to some degree, to a very light degree, uh, I, I like that. And they do that throughout the movie. And um, Princess Bride is just a movie that I've enjoyed for many, many years, so I had to include that. Uh, then I played a clip from Grease, which, come on, was one of my favorite movies growing up. I used to do those dances with my friends. Uh, on my steps, or we had an old Chevy car in our backyard, and I used to do greased lightning on on that car. And as far as those couples, Danny and Sandy, I mean that, yeah, I, that is a coupling that I, you know, would would want to be. Um, I probably saw myself as as John Travolta back in those days. Between that and Saturday Night Fever, uh, you know, uh, Song and Dance Man, yeah. So I had to include Grease. That's just a you know, a love of my childhood, and, and uh, definitely one of my top five movie couples. Then I included a newer one, Scott Pilgrim, Scott Pilgrim and Ramona. A different kind of romance, right? A romance that comes with drama and conflict. Um, it's not tragic, but it uh, uh, there is some, some strife to it, and, and it takes work for this couple to come together, and who knows if by the end, if they'll stay together, you know, forever and ever, but I enjoy that kind of romance as well, um, and I just think Ramona is awesome, not that I see myself as Scott Pilgrim, you know, not, 
not at all, but um, I fell in love with Ramona and the story because of the manga, and then of course, oh, geez, manga, because of the comics. Um, and then when I saw the movie, it just all clicked, so yeah. And then it also in turn made, made me a big fan of uh, Mary Elizabeth Winstead. Um, I think that's her name. <laughs> My brain is not working today. So that was the other one, Scott Pilgrim. And then last was Gross Point Blank, a John Cusack movie, because I love the dialogue in that movie. I love the weird chemistry that he has with Minnie Driver, the two characters. It's intelligent, it's witty, it's nervous, it's on the edge. Um, big fan of John Cusack. And I toyed with putting Better Off Dead, a scene from Better Off Dead, in one of those top fives as I was thinking about John Cusack and, you know, his everyman quality. Um, and I know uh, someone mentioned, well, actually, Chris Beckett, he provided his own top five on his website, which I'll provide a link to. And he wondered uh, why I didn't include uh, Say Anything, a scene from Say Anything. And that one, um, I'm not sure I, I can relate to that couple, or I'm not sure that couple speaks to me. You know, I enjoyed that movie very much. Uh, for me, the gross point blank couple coupling was um very spot on in fact what i really should have included is high fidelity john cusack's turn in high fidelity with with the his co-actress there because that story of high fidelity is very much um the relationship that i had uh in that seven year relationship that i talked about briefly in one of the episodes i mean that that movie is my seven that is an exact example of um, what happened in, in that relationship that I had, although we didn't get back together again. So that wasn't exactly a, a, a favorite couple, even though I love that movie and I love that book, High Fidelity. Uh, I didn't feel the need to put that on there. I mentioned Chris Beckett over on his website, warrior27.com. He posts his top five. Um, the uh, His first one is from Last of the Mohicans with Daniel Day-Lewis and his co-star there. He also included Princess Bride. He then included Say Anything and the Boombox scene. Uh, Star Wars between Han Solo and Princess Leia. And then The Fountain with uh, Hugh Jackman, uh, the Darren Aronofsky movie, which I have never seen, so I should probably check that out. Um, when I saw this on his website, I thought, oh, you know what? There's a movie to add to the list. So let me know. Let me know what your top five movie couples would be. And uh, by the way, I do have a follow-up to that um, I've already started working on the top five TV couples, which I'll do uh, somewhere down the road. Had a few comments on the Les Mis episode and the Les Mis review that I did. First up, Corey Strode, who, by the way, is also dipping into the solo podcasting with a podcast called Solitaire Rose Radio. The first episode was out a couple weeks back. You can go to crazycomics.solitairerose.com. I'll provide a link because crazy is spelled K-R-A-Y-Z and comics is with an X. So it's a little bit hard if you just type it in. But I'll put a link there. Uh, he says, in the 90s, there were a few big musicals, Rent, Les Mis, and Phantom. They have all been turned into films. Were there any big musicals of this century that you feel are as popular as those and will be brought to the screen? And no, Spider-Man Turn Off the Dark doesn't count. <laughs> Loving the show. Keep up the great podcast. Always something to think about in every episode. Thanks, Corey. Um, well, we got one of those movies so far. Rock of Ages. Uh, if that Tom Cruise vehicle, if you didn't know, that was actually based on a musical. And um, 
we've had some other musicals in the past, Dream Girl, Sweeney Todd, but these that was from the previous century. I, when he said, are there any big musicals of this century, I still kind of thought back to 1900 to the year 2000, right, or to whatever, um, realizing, oh, no, 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 he means, truly, he means this century, <laughs> the 21st century. Weird. Um... I don't know. I don't know if I know of any movie uh, musicals that I think will translate well to the screen. Um, you know, you always want it to be organic. You always want the success of something like Chicago and Les Mis to transfer in all of the other movies. I don't think Fan Phantom of the Opera was a good transfer. Uh, Rent was okay. Sweeney Todd was okay. Um, I know there are a bunch of movies in the works. Uh, movie musicals, I should say, that are going to be turned into movies. Um, Gypsy with uh, with Babs. Um, what the hell's her name? Barbara Streisand. Thank you. Um, that's been rumored to be coming about. Uh, and then there was Little Shop of Horrors with Joseph Gordon-Levitt. That was supposed to be made into a movie, which is funny because Little Shop of Horrors actually was a movie first, and Jack Nicholson was in that in one of his first... Um, one of his first roles. Um, he played, if you ever saw the 80s Little Shop of Horrors movie uh, and the role that Bill Murray had, that's kind of the role that Jack Nicholson had in that in that old movie. So it was a movie first, then it became an off-Broadway show and a Broadway show, and then it became a movie again, and then they had a revival, and now it's you know considered to be a movie again. Um, Into the Woods, Jersey Boys, Wicked, Miss Saigon, Spring Awakening, these are all musicals that they're waiting to possibly make into a movie. American Idiot, based on the music of Nirvana, um, which is a, a more recent musical. And then I saw somewhere that Carousel, with uh, Hugh Jackman in the lead role as Billy Bigelow, might be making its way to, to the big screen, which is kind of interesting. I know that there's a movie that I wish they would make into a musical, and that's Pennies from Heaven, the Steve Martin, Bernadette Peters uh, movie, because I think that's ripe for the plucking, for you know to be turned into a, a musical. It already is. And uh, who knows, maybe they'll just make some straight movie musicals that aren't based on anything. You know, think of the artist. Uh, I wonder if they could do that again. So thanks, Corey, for, for that comment. Also on that same Les Mis review, uh, Nick Q says, Haven't seen the film, but I've seen two Les Mis touring companies here in Phoenix. I do remember a deathbed scene with an angel in one version, but not in the other. Could the musical have been changed that drastically or a scene left out? Or was it just staged differently so that it didn't have as much of an impact on me so I didn't remember it? I always thought a stage play was the domain of the playwright, not the director. Yeah, domain of the playwright, not the director. I guess it depends on who you ask. <laughs> um, wow, I, that's a hard one, you know? I mean, think of Shakespeare. Um, everybody wants to do his, his work, and, and there's a playwright of, of much note. But there are many directors who want to try and conceptualize uh, a lot of his plays. You know, bring it to modern times, set into World War One, World War Two, cast women as men, place it in some other era. Um, that's a very directory thing to do. The underlying piece is still there, though. The project still it, it is what it is. Um, they're just trying to add a different layer onto it to maybe make you think of the play in a new way. Um, you know, that's a very director thing to do. In terms of the playwright, I mean, yeah, there are some directors who will try to influence or, or tweak some things to, to maybe help the audience along. 
Um, once a project gets out there, though, especially in, in the domain of regional theater or some regional tours, and um, that's when you'll start to maybe see some, some playing around with here and there. You can't change a play too much, a musical or play too much. You can't delete scenes. You can't change the intention of the work too much because then the whoever owns the royalties whoever you have to rent the play from they can step in and and make you change it back or shut down the production that has happened a couple times here and there um there was a production of Greece I think actually here in Philadelphia that was to be done with an all female cast and they they squ they squished it they said no you can't do that um I forget what the exact wording is and the ruling is but uh, you know, you can't do too much to alter a production so that it um, has a different feel to it. Uh, something like what you're talking about in that Les Mis production, if it's just... I have to imagine maybe if, if you're talking a deathbed scene, maybe you're talking about Fantine's deathbed scene, where it's usually just her and Jean Valjean, and then later in the play when he dies, uh, she comes to him in the form of a spirit. And maybe the director thought, well, let me put an angel in Fontaine's deathbed scene to connect to the end of the show, right? An angel came to Fontaine, and then Fontaine as an angel came to Jean Valjean. I could see a director doing that just to add some continuity to the show. So that doesn't sound like anything that is too remote from what is already being presented. Um, and then, th and that certainly isn't in the script, so that was a director's choice. So, yeah, director versus playwright... Um, I think in plays themselves, a playwright has more of a voice. Um, not always, though. It's, it's, again, it comes down to who you ask. There are some musicals, 42nd Street, producers, just because I'm working on producers, that I can't see a director totally changing, you know, making it some new radical version. Because the plays themselves, those musicals, are machines, right? Once it starts, you have to let them just roll because there are certain things that need to happen and certain expectations. Um, um, you know, with, with Rodgers and Hammerstein shows, uh, whenever you get uh, Agnes DeMille choreography, there are a lot of cases where they want you to do the original choreography. And yet there are some shows, like You're in Town, that... Um, they made a bid to sue someone because they were trying too hard to make it the same production as it was on Broadway. Um, I could be paraphrasing, uh, and I, maybe I'm not remembering the full story, but I do remember them kind of... They wanted to trademark their version of the show. and Maybe that's what it was. They wanted to trademark their version of the show and get royalties from that um, based on if you used their design concepts, if you used their staging. I think it was something more along those lines, so someone can correct me on that. Uh, it's a t tricky business, right? It's a real tricky business. There's a show currently going on right now in Boston that I was a part of here in Philadelphia, and through nobody's fault but my own, um, I kind of let it slip, and now I'm, you know, uh, just not pursuing it any further, but they're doing the show up in Boston, and I have to wonder, okay, well then, there was some considerable choreography in it, and I definitely co-directed it on many levels. Um, and I was never contacted about it going on the road, and I have to wonder, okay, well then, where's the choreography coming from? Where are all my concepts? Are they still in play? Did they learn off of a CD? Did, did the producer just hand it to the CD to them and say, here, uh, go over what you remember? Um, because... I didn't, my contract was for just 
that production. It wasn't in in the contract. It didn't say you know we will use your choreography for later productions. Um, you know, I could make a real big stink about this through uh, equity, um, and I, I'm choosing not to because through, as I said, through nobody's fault but my own. I, I let it slip by because I was busy with other things, and I don't know all the story, all the story behind it. But I have to assume that they are using a lot of my work, and I should at least either get um, a notice for that or payment. And uh, you know, I didn't follow through, so shame on me. But. Yeah, it's a tricky thing when it comes down to theater performing and credits and, and where the work is coming from. And, um, you know, it's an ever evolving situation. We had some few best of topics that I didn't get to or that I just held off for one reason or another. Um, Simon McDonald has a whole bunch, uh, two of them. He has Best Espionage and Best Crime Comic of 2012. I don't really read a lot of that for some reason. It doesn't ever really stick with me. Um, when I start seeing words like hitman and guns and on the run and uh, um, femme fatale and, you know, I don't know. I, that's If it's something that I feel could be a movie more than a comic, uh, I don't know. I, I tend to shy away from. Um, and then he has best anthropomorphic comic of 2012, which I don't know if there were many of them. I'm certainly looking forward to, to Captain Carrot in, in Threshold with Keith Giffen. Um, and then he has Best Series that ended in 2012, which for me that would be Butcher Baker, Righteous Maker, um, which uh, the final issue came out in 2012. Every other issue before that I think came out in 2011. Talk about a book that used the medium well and just was out there and zany. Um, it is hard. It is collected now in a hardcover, I would get it. It's only eight issues. It's It was fantastic. If you like in-your-face comics, uh, you got to get that. Uh, and then Best Reprinted Material of 2012. I loved IDW's uh, David Mazzucchelli Born Again Artist Edition book, where you got to see a lot of the original artwork of all all of the issues, all of the chapters of Born Again by Frank Miller and David Mazzucchelli. Wow. Just, whew, just makes you so glad you, you know, you read comics when you look at something like that. Chris Snell asked Best New Character. I'm kind of intrigued by Talon over at DC, but I haven't read that series yet. I'm nowhere near caught up. In fact, there are a lot of Best Ofs that I just couldn't... I assume they would be, you know, geared towards DC. Like um, Chris Bailey says, uh, How about Best and Worst Continuity or Character Change for all the company relaunches this year? And, uh, you know, I'm just so behind in D.C., I don't know how I can answer that. I guess you could say profit, profit and glory from Image. You know, those are certainly some new character continuity changes for those two properties. And uh, they worked very well. Um, We've had many suggestions for Best Creator Meltdown, um, Best Comics Controversy, uh, which there are far too many to list, many of them that I think um, had no weight at all. It was just a bunch of people blowing off some steam. Um, I liked this one. Matthew Graham says, comic that lived up to my high expectations in 2012. It's always easy for something to disappoint, but when something is just as good as you hyped it in your mind, that's great. I like that category. I don't know what, what I would give it to, but uh, yeah, it's very true. So many times we see people say, oh, it didn't live up to my expectations, and many times I say, well, then maybe it's your expectations you need to change, not the comic. Um, but in terms of reading a book that met your expectations and exceeded, that's always a plus. And we had some other ones. Uh, Tony Hazel said, what about the best art swipe of 2012? 
Um, I know when Rob Liefeld did his Deathstroke origin in the Deathstroke book, he used a lot of the George Perez work that was in the Deathstroke origin chapter of the Judas Contract back in the 80s. And he basically kept a lot of that and, and shaped it to his story, so he was using, um, redoing, I should say, some of the Perez stuff, and that's not the first time he did that. In fact, the first issue of X-Force, when Rob Liefeld was on it back in the early 90s, a lot of those initial opening pages, this whole fight scene between X-Force and I don't even know who, it's a blatant ripoff of um, New Teen Titans issue 40, I want to say. And when you put the two books side to side, it's either issue 40 or 39, uh, when you put them side to side, you realize, wow, he is just swiping the hell out of George Perez. Um, and I think it's because he may have purchased those original pages. Uh, Rob Liefeld was a huge George Perez fan and, and used to buy a lot of artwork. Um, but yeah, you put those two issues side by side and you start to go, woo, that is some ugly art swiping going on there. Uh, and then MJ, he, she, she asks, uh, what was the best smelling comics? <laughs> That's an interesting topic. I don't know if I know of any. <laughs> All right. Um, there's a bunch of other feedback, some pretty long ones um, that I don't think I have the energy for. So I'll, I'll just throw them into the next time I do a Feedback Friday episode. And I was supposed to do some Marvel Now reviews, but I just haven't had the focus to read uh, Savage Wolverine number one, Uncanny X-Force number one, and Young Avengers number one. So I will throw that into the mix next week. If you want to send me feedback... It's Peter at thedailyreels.com, or you can leave a comment on the website. You know where to find me on Twitter, Peter J. Rios. That's it for this week. Everybody have a great weekend, and hopefully I'll see you next week stronger and healthier so that we can uh, do yet another week of The Daily Rios. All right, I'll see you. Bye.